Chapters 11 through 20 of Against Celsus, Book 5, by Origen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But even this rational light itself ought not to be worshipped by him who beholds and understands the true light, by sharing in which these also are enlightened, nor by him who beholds God the Father of the true light, of whom it has been said, quote, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, end quote. Those indeed who worship sun, moon, and stars because their light is visible and celestial would not bow down to a spark of fire or a lamp upon earth because they see the incomparable superiority of those objects which are deemed worthy of homage to the light of sparks and lamps. So those who understand that God is light and who have apprehended that the Son of God is, quote, the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world, end quote, and who comprehend also how he says, quote, I am the light of the world, end quote, would not rationally offer worship to that which is, as it were, a spark in sun, moon, and stars in comparison with God who is light of the true light. Nor is it with a view to depreciate these great works of God's creative power, or to call them, after the fashion of Anaxagoras, fiery masses, that we thus speak of sun and moon and stars, but because we perceive with inexpressible superiority of the divinity of God and that of his only begotten Son, which surpasses all other things, and being persuaded that the Son himself and moon, and stars, pray to the supreme God through his only begotten Son, we judge it improper to pray to those beings which themselves offer prayers to God, seeing even they themselves would prefer that we should send up our requests to the God to whom they pray, rather than send them downward to themselves, or apportion our power of prayer between God and them. And here I may employ this illustration as bearing upon this point. Our Lord and Savior, hearing himself on one occasion addressed as good master, referring him who used it to his own father, said, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God the Father. And since it was in accordance with sound reason that this should be said by the Son of his Father's love, as being the image of the goodness of God, why should not the Son say with greater reason to those that bow down to him, Why do you worship me? For thou wilt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. For it is he whom I and all who are with me serve and worship. And although... One may not be so exalted as the Son, nevertheless let such and one pray to the word of God, who is able to heal him, and still more to his Father, who also to the righteous of former times sent his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destructions. God accordingly, in his kindness, condescends to mankind, not in any local sense, but through his providence. While the Son of God, not only when on earth, but at all times, is with his own disciples, fulfilling the promise, quote, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, end quote. 
And if a branch cannot bear fruit except it abide in the vine, it is evident that the disciples also of the word, who are the rational branches of the word's true vine, cannot produce the fruits of virtue unless they abide in the true vine, the Christ of God, who is with us locally here below upon the earth, and who is with those who cleave to him in all parts of the world, and is also in all places with those who do not know him. Another is made manifest by that John who wrote the gospel. When speaking in the person of John the Baptist, he said, quote, There standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who cometh after me. End quote. And it is absurd when he who fills heaven and earth, and who said, quote, Do I not fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? End quote, is with us and near us. For I believe him when he says, quote, I am a God nigh at hand, and not afar off, saith the Lord. End quote. To seek, to pray, to sun or moon, or one of the stars, whose influence does not reach the whole of the world. But, to use the very words of Celsus, let it be granted that, quote, The sun, moon, and stars do foretell rain, and heat, and clouds, and thunders. End quote. Why then, if they really do foretell such great things, ought we not rather to do homage to God, whose servant they are in uttering these predictions, and show reverence to him rather than his prophets? Let them predict, then, the approach of lightnings and fruits and all manner of productions, and let all such things be under their administration. Yet we shall not on that account worship those who themselves offer worship." as we do not worship even Moses, and those prophets who came from God after him, and who predicted better things than rain, and heat, and clouds, and thunders, and lightnings, and fruits, and all sorts of productions visible to the senses. Nay, even if sun, and moon, and stars were able to prophesy better things than rain, not even then shall we worship them, but the father of the prophecies which are in them, in the word of God, their minister." but grant that they are his heralds, and truly messengers of heaven. Why, even then, ought we not to worship the God whom they only proclaim and announce, rather than those who are the heralds and messengers? Celsus, moreover, assumes that sun and moon and stars are regarded by us as of no account. Now with regard to these, we acknowledge that they too are, quote, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God, end quote being for the present subjected to the vanity of their material bodies, quote, by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, end quote. But if Celsus had read the innumerable other passages where we speak of sun, moon, and stars, and especially these, quote, praise him, all ye stars, and thou, O light, and praise him, ye heaven of heavens, end quote. He would not have said of us that we regard such mighty beings which greatly praise the Lord God as of no account. Nor did Celsus know the passage, quote, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. End quote. 
And with these words, let us terminate our defense against the charge of not worshiping sun, moon, and stars, and let us now bring forward those statements of his which follow, that we may, God willing, address to him in reply such arguments as shall be suggested by the light of truth. The following, then, are his words, quote, It is folly on their part to suppose that when God, as if he were a cook, introduces the fire, which is to consume the world, all the rest of the human race will be burnt up, while they alone will remain, not only such of them as are then alive, but also those who are long since dead, which latter will arise from the earth clothed with the self-same flesh as during life. For such a hope is simply one which might be cherished by worms. For what sort of human soul is that which would still long for a body that had been subject to corruption? Whence also this opinion of yours is not shared by some of the Christians, and they pronounce it to be exceedingly vile and loathsome and impossible. For what kind of body is that which, after being completely corrupted, can return to its original nature, and to that self-same first condition out of which it fell into dissolution? Being unable to return any answer, they betake themselves to a most absurd refuge, viz., that all things are possible to God. And yet God cannot do things that are disgraceful, nor does he wish to do things that are contrary to his nature, nor if, in accordance with the wickedness of your own heart, you desired anything that was evil. Would God accomplish it? Nor must you believe at once that it will be done. For God does not rule the world in order to satisfy inordinate desires, or to allow disorder and confusion, but to govern a nature that is upright and just. For the soul, indeed, he might be able to provide an everlasting life, while dead bodies, on the contrary, are, as Heraclitus observes, more worthless than dung. God, however, neither can nor will declare contrary to all reason that the flesh, which is full of those things which it is not even honorable to mention, is to exist forever. For he is the reason of all things that exist, and therefore can do nothing either contrary to reason or contrary to himself. End quote. Observe now, here at the very beginning, how, in ridiculing the doctrine of a conflagration of the world held by certain of the Greeks who have treated the subject in a philosophic spirit not to be depreciated, he would make us, quote, representing God, as it were, as a cook, hold the belief in a general conflagration, end quote. Not perceiving that, as certain Greeks were of opinion, perhaps having received their information from the ancient nation of the Hebrews, it is a perificatory fire which is brought upon the world, and probably also on each one of those who stand in need of chastisement by the fire and healing at the same time, seeing it burns indeed, but does not consume, those who are without a material body which needs to be consumed by that fire, and which burns and consumes those who by their actions, words, and thoughts have built up wood or hay or stubble in that which is figuratively termed a building. And the holy scriptures say that the Lord will, like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap, visit each one of those who require purification, because of the intermingling in them of a flood of wicked matter proceeding from their evil nature, 
who need fire, I mean, to refine, as it were, the dross of those who are intermingled with copper and tin and lead. And he who likes may learn this from the prophet Ezekiel. But that we say that God brings fire upon the world, not like a cook, but like a God who is the benefactor of them who stand in need of the discipline of fire, will be testified by the prophet Isaiah, in whose writings it is related that a sinful nation was thus addressed, quote, Because thou hast coals of fire sit upon them, they shall be to thee a help, end quote. Now the scripture is appropriately adapted to the multitudes of those who are to peruse it, because it speaks obscurely of things that are sad and gloomy, in order to terrify those who cannot by any other means be saved from the flood of their sins, although even then the attentive reader will clearly discover the end that is to be accomplished by these sad and painful punishments upon those who endure them. It is sufficient, however, for the present, to quote the words of Isaiah, quote, For my name's sake will I show mine anger and my glory. I will bring upon thee that I may not destroy thee, End quote. We have thus been under the necessity of referring in obscure terms to questions not fitted to the capacity of simple believers, who require a simpler instruction in words, that we might not appear to leave unrefuted the accusation of Celsus that, quote, God introduces the fire, which is to destroy the world as if he were a cook, end quote. From what has been said, it will be manifest to intelligent hearers how we have to answer the following, quote, All the rest of the race will be completely burnt up, and they alone will remain, end quote. It is not to be wondered at, indeed, if such thoughts have been entertained by those amongst us who are called in scripture the foolish things of the world, and base things, and things which are despised, and things which are not, because, by the foolishness of preaching, it pleased God to save them that believe on him. After that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Because such individuals are unable to see distinctly the sense of each particular passage, or unwilling to devote the necessary leisure to the investigation of scripture, notwithstanding the injunction of Jesus, quote, search the scriptures, end quote. Following, Moreover, are his ideas regarding the fire which is to be brought upon the world by God, and the punishments which are to befall sinners. And perhaps, as it is appropriate to children that some things should be addressed to them in a manner befitting their infantile condition, to convert them, as being of very tender age, to a better course of life, so to those whom the word terms the foolish things of the world, and the base, and the despised, the just and obvious meaning of the passages relating to punishments is suitable inasmuch as they cannot receive any other mode of conversion than that which is by fear and the presentation of punishment, and thus be saved from the many evils which would befall them. The scripture accordingly declares that only those who are unscathed by the fire and the punishments are to remain, those, viz., whose opinions and morals and mind have been purified to the highest degree, while, on the other hand, those of a different nature, those, viz., who, 
according to their deserts, require the administration of punishment by fire, will be involved in these sufferings with a view to an end which it is suitable for God to bring upon those who have been created in his image, but who have lived in opposition to the will of that nature which is according to his image. And this is our answer to the statement, quote, All the rest of the race will be completely burnt up, but they alone are to remain. End quote. Then, in the next place, having either himself misunderstood the sacred scriptures, or those interpreters by whom they were not understood, he proceeds to assert that, quote, It is said by us that there will remain at the time of the visitation, which is to come upon the world by the fire of purification, not only those who are then alive, but also those who are long ago dead, end quote not observing that it is with a secret kind of wisdom that it was said by the apostle of Jesus, quote, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, End quote. Now he ought to have noticed what was the meaning of him who uttered these words, as being one who was by no means dead, who made a distinction between himself and those like him, and the dead, and who said afterwards, quote, The dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. End quote. And as a proof that such was the apostle's meaning in writing those words which I have quoted from the first epistle to the Corinthians, I will quote also from the first to the Thessalonians, in which Paul, as one who is alive and awake and different from those who are asleep, speaks as follows, quote, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them who are asleep, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God, End quote. Then, again, after this, knowing that there were others dead in Christ besides himself, and such as he, he subjoins the words, quote, The dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, End quote. But since he has ridiculed at great length the doctrine of the resurrection of the flesh, which has been preached in the churches, and which is more clearly understood by the more intelligent believer, and as it is necessary again to quote his words, which have been already adduced, let us, with regard to the problem, as in an apologetic work directed against an alien from the faith and for the sake of those who are still, quote, children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, end quote. State and establish, to the best of our ability, a few points expressly intended for our readers. Neither we, then, nor the Holy Scriptures, assert that with the same bodies, without a change to a higher condition, quote, shall those who are long dead arise from the earth and live again, end quote. For in so speaking, Celsus makes a false charge against us. For we may listen to many passages of Scripture treating of the resurrection in a manner worthy of God, although it may suffice for the present to quote the language of Paul from the first epistle to the Corinthians, where he says, quote, but some man will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? 
thou fool. That which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat, or of some other grain, but God giveth it a body, as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. End quote. Now, observe how in these words he says that there is sown, quote, not that body that shall be, end quote, but that of the body which is sown and cast naked into the earth, God giving to each seed its own body. There takes place, as it were, a resurrection. From the seed that was cast into the ground, there arising a stalk, e.g. among such plants as the following, viz. the mustard plant, or of a larger tree, as in the olive, or one of the fruit trees. God then gives to each thing its own body as he pleases, as in the case of plants that are sown, so also in the case of those beings who are, as it were, sown in dying, and who in due time receive, out of what has been sown, the body assigned by God to each one according to his deserts. And we may hear, moreover, the scripture teaching us at great length the difference between that which is, as it were, sown, and that which is, as it were, raised from it, in these words, quote, It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body, end quote. And let him who has the capacity understand the meaning of the words, quote, As is the earthly, such are they also that are earthly, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly, end quote. And although the apostle wished to conceal the secret meaning of the passage, which was not adapted to the simpler class of believers and to the understanding of the common people, who are led by their faith to enter on a better course of life, he was nevertheless obliged afterwards to say, in order that we might not misapprehend his meaning, after, quote, let us bear the image of the heavenly, these words also, now, this I say, Brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. End quote. Then, knowing that there was a secret and mystical meaning in the passage, as was becoming in one who was leaving in his epistles to those who were to come after him, words full of significance, he subjoins the following quote, Behold, I show you a mystery. End quote which is his usual style in introducing matters of a profounder and more mystical nature, and such as are fittingly concealed from the multitude, as is written in the book of Tobit, quote, It is good to keep close the secret of a king, but honorable to reveal the works of God, end quote. In a way consistent with truth and God's glory, and so as to be to the advantage of the multitude, our hope, then, is not, quote, the hope of worms, nor does our soul long for a body that has seen corruption, end quote. For although it may require a body for the sake of moving from place to place, yet it understands, as having meditated on the wisdom that is from above, agreeably to the declaration, quote, the mouth of the righteous will speak wisdom, end quote. The difference between the earthly house, in which is the tabernacle of the building that is to be dissolved, 
and that in which the righteous do groan, being burdened, not wishing to put off the tabernacle, but to be clothed therewith, that by being clothed upon, mortality might be swallowed up of life. For, in virtue of the whole nature of the body being corruptible, the corruptible tabernacle must put on incorruption, and its other part being mortal and becoming liable to the death which follows sin must put on immortality, in order that, when the corruptible shall have put on incorruption and the mortal immortality, then shall come to pass what was predicted of old by the prophets, the annihilation of the victory of death, because it had conquered and subjected us to his sway, and of its sting, with which it stings the imperfectly defended soul, and inflicts upon it the wounds which result from sin. But since our views regarding the resurrection have, as far as time would permit, been stated in part on the present occasion, for we have systematically examined the subject in greater detail in other parts of our writings, and as now we must by means of sound reasoning refute the fallacies of Celsus, who neither understands the meaning of our scripture, nor has the capacity of judging that the meaning of our wise men is not to be determined by those individuals who make no profession of anything more than of a simple faith in the Christian system, let us show that men, not to be lightly esteemed on account of their reasoning powers and their dialectic subtleties, have given expression to very absurd opinions. And if we must sneer at them as contemptible old wives' fables, it is at them rather than at our narrative that we must sneer. The disciples of the Porsche assert that after a period of years there will be a conflagration of the world, and after that an arrangement of things in which everything will be unchanged, as compared with the former arrangement of the world. Those of them, however, who evince their respect for this doctrine have said that there will be a change, although exceedingly slight, at the end of the cycle from what prevailed during the preceding. And these men maintain that in the succeeding cycle the same things will occur. And Socrates will be again the son of Sophronisus and a native of Athens. And Phaenarete, being married to Sophronisus, will again become his mother. And although they do not mention the word resurrection, they show in reality that Socrates, who derived his origin from seed, will spring from that of Sophronisus and will be fashioned in the womb of Phaenarete, and being brought up at Athens, will practice the study of philosophy, as if his former philosophy had arisen again, and were to be in no respect different from what it was before. Anitus and Miletus, too, will arise again as accusers of Socrates, and the council of Areopagus will condemn him to death. But what is more ridiculous still is that Socrates will clothe himself with garments not at all different from those which he wore during the former cycle, and will live in the same unchanged state of poverty, and in the same unchanged city of Athens. And Phalaris will again play the tyrant, and his brazen bull will pour forth its bellowings from the voices of victims within, unchanged from those who were condemned in the former cycle. And Alexander of Phere, too, 
will again act the tyrant with the cruelty unaltered from the former time, and will condemn to death the same unchanged individuals as before. But what need is there to go into detail upon the doctrine held by the Stoic philosophers on such things, and which escapes the ridicule of Celsus, and is perhaps even venerated by him, since he regards Zeno as a wiser man than Jesus? End of chapters 11 through 20 of Against Celsus, book 5, read by David Ronald.